0: So glad to see your faces, and for those that I can't see online, super glad that you guys are tuning in. Um, We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10 today, or the verse right before that, all the way through chapter 10. So you can go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to that passage. Um, We've been in Nehemiah now for nine weeks leading up to this week, and so this is our 10th week looking at the story of God's people in Nehemiah. And I want to give you a quick synopsis of what's going on. Basically, God's people had been in covenant with Him. He had made a covenant to bless them if they kept His commandments, to curse them, to scatter them if they disobeyed His commandments, and they had disobeyed. And all of us have this same likelihood that if we take our hands off the wheel, it's going to go towards that direction, and that is what had happened. God's people had disobeyed Him. They had been scattered for 70 years in captivity, And now, because they had been in slavery, they've been coming back in waves to God's place, and they had been praying for this moment to happen. They had rebuilt a wall. That's the first part of Nehemiah. They rebuild a wall. They bring people in. And now it's time to rebuild the worship of God. They're restoring God's worship, and they're restoring a culture of people who worship God. And so, for us at Bellwether, our culture is defined by our mission and who we are. We're a rescued people who love and serve God in the world. And this group of people are saying, hey, we're returning to God's worship and we're gonna return to God's place. And now it's time to define what that looks like for us to be God's people. And we're gonna look at two things in this passage. First of all, the occasion and the participants of renewing their covenant to God. And then we're gonna look at what the renewal of the covenant looks like. But before we look at God's word, I wanna invite you to join me in praying for our time. And just pause for a moment and before I, say any words out loud, I want you to pray. I want you to ask God to speak to me. Ask him to speak to you through his word. It's not just a time to listen to me pray, for us to all offer up this request. Lord, speak to us. Father, we believe that your Holy Spirit brings to life dead souls whenever the proclamation of the gospel happens. And so in this room, in this place, in this time, I pray that we would bring our hearts to your word in submission and gladness, that we would both be affirmed in things that we need to be affirmed in, corrected, because you're always doing those things. You're comforting us with the gospel. You're correcting us with your word. And I pray that you would do both of those things today as we look at this, your holy word. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and we're going to take pauses throughout chapter 10. First, in verse 38, it says this. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then he goes on to name the people. These people he names would represent leaders, heads of household. They would have represented many more people. He starts with the priests and Levites and the nobles, the priests and Levites, and then look down at, at verse 10, I mean sorry chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding are basically signing this covenant. So the occasion And the participants, I want to deal with that first, and then we're going to keep plowing through this text. Because of all this, that's where the the text begins. Because they have been in captivity for these 70 years, because they're returning physically to God's place, because they're returning spiritually to be renewed by the Lord, and all of these things, this creates this occasion where people would say, hey, how do we want to behave? They're currently back, and this occasion happens because God's law had been neglected. That's what I said at the beginning. That's why they found themselves in this place again. It had been neglected for years. They had, hadn't gathered. There was no reading of God's law. They had been uh, servants and slaves. The second part was their culture had been erosion, eroded previous obligations that they had to God's law in this covenant had been neglected for years and everything that had been previously agreed on and patterned by God's people they stopped doing it at some point along the way and because of that they found themselves in captivity and this had implications on their marriages it had implications on the Sabbath which affected their work life And it had implications on God's work and ministry to the people through the priest and the temple. So in all those places, the culture that they had previously pursued and agreed to with God had been eroded. They neglected God's word. They neglected the culture that God had called them to. And then they neglected this participation in God's work through the temple. And so they're not only physically returning to the place and building the wall, they're spiritually returning to a place that would say, okay, what kind of people do we want to be? How do we want these beliefs in the God of all creation to form us as a people? In other words, they're addressing in this passage, what kind of culture will we have as a people? When other people witness how we interact, engage in the world, when they witness us, what will they say about us and our God? And so they make a firm covenant, a written agreement, where if we do not follow this covenant, you can come looking for us, okay? They're saying, hey, we're going to put our names on it in a public display that we agree to these things so that if they don't do it, they're saying, hey, hold us accountable to this agreement. As soon, and I just want to point this out before we move on to the participants, the occasion that brought about this covenant renewal that happens in this passage There's so many occasions like this today. In fact, anytime that we presume something that we had taken on in the past, at some point you're going to neglect it. At some point you will neglect whatever forgotten responsibilities that you've previously taken on. It is just the way that our lives work. Because the world that we live in, the things that we're called to have to be tended there's going to be weeds that grow up among them. There's going to be ways in which you have to constantly cultivate what God's called you to. And this occasion represents all kinds of occasions in our lives today where God invites us to look back and see what he's invited us into and to pick back up the ball that we've dropped. Something that we've neglected, ignored, forgotten. And we welcome those kinds of occasions of renewal because this is the story, not just of God's people, it's the story of God. Restoring his people and demonstrating over and over and over again that he's the kind of God who renews things and restores things and brings them back to life. So then we move on to the participants that were at this point. It's a public endorsement. All of them are saying, hey, what are we going to believe? How are we going to behave? So who are these people? Uh, At some point they could have just said everyone participated, but he names categories and groups, and he names all the names that I could not pronounce. Therefore we skipped over those names. Okay? This list of people who had contributed, the list of people who stood and proclaimed God's word to one another, they're named here. And why is this? God wants for all of us for generations later to look back and say, hey, we took our place in history and said yes to what God was doing in this particular specific time and place. And that's what's happening at this moment. I believe the principle is that there's a specific group of people that are important to God's work and his renewal in this day and age. And right now we can look at what they did then and say, okay, there could be a work of renewal that's happening right now, a restoration. And he wants a group of people to be listed in name who said I agree I want to be part of that kind of culture couple principles as we move forward God's always raising up this kind of people who would love and serve God in the world sorry I just lost my place here we go He's always doing that. He's looking for that kind of people. And it's important that in different times and seasons that we would always be able to recognize what we've forgotten and dropped along the way. We're like a car that's out of alignment. You take your hand off the wheel, where's it going to go? Towards the ditch or towards the oncoming traffic? That's what your lives are like, okay? Because we live in a sinful world and we're participants in a sinful world, if you take your hand off the wheel, sometimes you're going to go towards the ditch, okay? That's how it works, And all of these moments in our lives are occasions like this where God is saying, hey, how will you worship me? How will you live out the beliefs that you profess? Very, very similar to what we as a church did back in November. Now, if you've just shown up today, (laughs) you have no idea what I'm talking about. All of our previous members of the church, we said, hey, we want you to consider renewing the covenant because we had been scattered just like this group of people. And we were coming back together and saying, okay, what do we believe? How do we want to behave moving forward? And that's why we did that. We held a a members meeting and we said, okay, who's in with us moving forward? What kind of culture do we want to have moving forward? And so we did that. Church membership is like that too. It's just like this moment. Some of you are like, hey, I don't even know about church membership. This is one of the first places in God's Word. It's all throughout God's Word. It's one of the most clear places where church membership is demonstrated, where they're all saying, hey, we will all agree to this kind of behavior. This is what we believe. This is how we behave. And it set a culture in, in, in their midst that had been forgotten. So church membership is like that. It's a public agreement saying, hey, we're going to do this. And I just remembered that I forgot to commission someone. Sorry. We're going to commission a new member in just a moment. Um, We're in a moment where as a church we're renewing our commitment to who we seek to be as a people, okay? So what are they publicly agreeing to? There's the occasion, there's these group of participants that go from leaders all the way down to just the daughters and sons of whoever was there. And then they move into what are they doing? Three different things that they're renewing in this covenant. These are not new things. They're not new things for this group of people. They were things that they had agreed to at the very beginning when God called them His own and gave them His law. These are things they would have been returning to, saying, okay, we'll pick it back up, okay? So they're making the covenant together to say, this is what we're going to do. And it's a curse and an oath. What does that mean? It says, hey, we will gladly accept the consequences if we disobey this, and we will gladly accept the blessings when we do what God has commanded and how He's designed the world to work. And the world still works that way. Very practically, if you live in a way that follows his design for the world, there's blessings that follow that. And if you reject his design and his law, there's curses that follow that. There's consequences. And in all of those ways, they're saying, hey, we're going to come back to a place where we agree with that. A curse and an oath. And then in verse 29, look at what it says. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. In other words, we're saying, hey, we're going to walk in the law of the Lord. And then there's three specific areas that they come back to. First one is marriage. Then they deal with Sabbath. And then they deal with giving, Okay giving, Uh, we'll we'll get there in a second, but first they deal with marriage. Verse 30, look at it. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So the first renewal that they had in this covenant renewal was they're saying, hey, our home lives from the very basic marriage relationship is no longer going to be defined by the culture that we've been in. It's going to be defined by what God's rules are for this covenant. Okay. So the first place is marriage, Nehemiah 10, 1030, saying, hey, we're going to allow you, God, to define our relationship with the culture around us, specifically when it comes to giving our daughters and sons a marriage. First institution of God outside of creating individuals was this institution. And from the very beginning, he had good designs for the gift of marriage. And throughout all of his people's history, this was the first place where he would demonstrate what he's like in the context of a relationship, okay? You got Adam and Eve. And they're demonstrating what God had demonstrated throughout all of eternity in the Trinity. There was perfect unity and distinction. And he wanted that to be visible in the relationship between a man and his wife, And he makes that visibility, that demonstration of his character every day available to those who are entered into the covenant of marriage. That's the first place where they're saying, hey, we're going to come back to your design for this. The other significance about this is that they would have used their relationship with the the culture around them um, in marriage to gain access, to have distinction. They basically were powerless unless they gave their kids to the people who ruled over them. So in other words, they're giving up a form of power in order to follow God's commands. They're releasing the, the ability to make relationships with the culture around them. They're releasing their social distinction to say, hey, we're giving this up in order to obey you. Because in the context of the home, it's the first place that his worship and the culture of knowing him and believing in him and loving him would be demonstrated. Significance of our understanding of God and all other relationships cannot be overstated, and it starts in the first relationships, in our marriage, in our home. And so when we share the same understanding of creator and savior, it makes everything different with the way that we relate to one another. So um, here's what I want you to know. If you're single, it means that your compatibility with someone <laughs> primarily needs to be distinguished with what you believe about God, okay? Whatever eHarmony says, listen, there are, you have more in common with the underground church goer in China than you do with the person you play tennis with, Okay. That's the first thing you need to know, that he's not against interracial marriages. He's against inter, in, interreligious marriages. He's saying, hey, you cannot marry someone. You cannot form a bond with someone who does not have this foundational understanding of who God is and how he works in the world. That's the first thing. So if you're, if you're out there missionary dating, young ones, I want, I want to invite you to, uh, to God's designed for your life. He wants you to pursue himself and then find someone that's on the same pursuit and then and, and make that connection. Tim Keller says it this way uh, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. In sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other traditional societies, that's what they're describing here, made the family the ultimate value in life. And so marriage was a mere transaction that helped your family's interests. That's what they're denying. And here's what they're pursuing. By contrast, contemporary Western societies make individuals' happiness the ultimate value. And so marriage becomes primarily an experiment, experience of romantic fulfillment. But the Bible... Here's the distinction of the Bible. The Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that intimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. That is because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is the covenant. And so covenant is not some dirty word. This is something where God wants to use your marriage to renew. And so here's the principle. All people, all the people, your desire, if your desire is for God to renew your life, it starts in the context of your home. That's the principle from this. He's saying, hey, the first place where I stake my claim on this group of people, where this culture is going to be lived out, is in the context of your home. The primary place where he wants to set things right, not just in what they believe, but how they behave, is in our family relationships. And so we have to bring those relationships into the alignment with, hey, God's designed this. It's his good gift. I'm going to Um, live by his design. And so when we embrace the truth of God's word, it changes the way that we relate in the context of our homes. Single people, prerequisite for marriage is sharing the same faith. It's the biggest one, okay? Do not enter any kind of covenant that would threaten or violate your primary relationship with God. Second thing is married people, God's design for your marriage is that it would be a shared place of worship, That's why they wouldn't intermarry, because there was pagan worship. It would diluted what they believed about God. He wants the primary place for his worship to be lived out is in the context of your home. Renewal meant surrendering their family to God's design for it. And so marriages, homes were defined by the unity that they shared in committing to walk in God's ways. Now, I'm going to keep moving. Second renewal was that of the Sabbath. Read this scripture with me. It says in verse 31, And if the peoples of the land bring any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year, the exaction of every debt. Okay. Sabbath was intended to be this good gift of rest to God's people. In fact, it was designed for them to delight. Jesus described it like this. God didn't make man for the Sabbath. He made Sabbath for the man. And he's saying, look, he wants to give them this great gift of rest and boundaries and faith where every single week they would have to surrender their desire to be productive which some of us, we, that's a really hard desire to surrender. It was, it was a surrender of their desire to make, uh, t- to have economic benefits. They were saying, hey, look, we're going to surrender that on this day. It was all, in all of these ways, they were saying, look, we trust you. From, from the days in the wilderness where God was providing manna, they had to trust that God was going to provide for them on the sixth day, what he couldn't in the seventh, what he wouldn't in the seventh. He could have, he just didn't. So Sabbath day represented sacrifice and faith. No buying and selling. Imagine the economic repercussions for this group of people. What they were saying on this. They were saying, we're going to return by faith to obey and renew this obligation of the Sabbath. And this required surrender. It required sacrifice, specifically in the area of of debts. So what they would have made, they did not make. What they would have spent, they did not spend. What they would have gotten every seventh year. Now this sabbatical year for their crops, they had to let the land lie fallow and they had to allow all of the debts to be canceled on that seventh year among them as a people. Renewal would have required incredible surrender and sacrifice. Giving up what could have been theirs in order to say, we trust God to provide. Now, In case y'all are wondering if I'm about to require that everyone not go shopping on Sundays or Sabbath or whatever, let me just speak into that for a second. Just like side note on the wisdom, okay? Romans chapter 14 deals with holy days in the New Covenant, and it basically says everyone should be convinced in his or her own mind, okay? You should be convinced according to how you do it. That means that there is no Sabbath requirement for New Testament believers, but if you are convinced that it is a good gift, I would say you need to live by that, okay? Okay? And I believe it is a really good gift personally. When I skip a day of rest at the end of every week, my body feels the toll. I feel it's a good gift. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 58, he describes it like this when he's inviting them to turn back to the Sabbath. He says, "If, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, And a holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, taking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. In other words, here's what he's saying. Every chance you get to take a Sabbath rest or to take a sabbatical, it's an invitation to delight. And when you delight in the things around you and nature and creation and just watching a good show, whatever it is, there's also an invitation to delight your heart in God himself. So it wasn't something that he put on us as some restriction. He's inviting us to delight in His creation and ultimately Himself in this good gift of Sabbath. And so they were returning to it and it would have cost them greatly, but what they would have gained in their delight made their sacrifice look meager. Anytime you give up something to delight in the Lord, it makes like it looks like you're trading plastic for gold. Every single time, it looks like you're trading in something, and you got something much more rich out of the trade. And that's God's invitation to us today to delight in Him. That's the invitation that they were responding to in covenant and renewing to the Sabbath. Now, however, it falls for you if you do not keep a strict Sabbath or you loosely keep the Sabbath, I just want to say in wisdom, what I've learned is that if I do not, your body will tell the toll. Eventually it will cost you. So God's pattern for everyone, good human design, is that you would take a pattern of rest. That's his invitation to us. Third obligation, okay? And as much as pastors get a bad rap about talking about giving, What I want you to know is it is a delight for me to talk about because I believe God is not intimidated by talking about sacrificial giving. The third thing that he talks about is giving. They took on this obligation to give. Look at verse 32. He says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the work of the House of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to your father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the, our ground and the first fruits of every of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house, to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of the sons and our, of our cattle, as it's written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priest, to the chambers, to the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. Bear with me all, verse thirty-eight. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, and to the chambers of the storehouse, for the people of Israel, and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as the well as well as the priest who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. Now here's the conclusion, and it's the most important statement. So if I lost you, I know it's a lot of words, here's the conclusion. We will not neglect the house of our God. In other words, we're not not going to neglect with our finances the work that God is accomplishing in the world. So what they're doing, in summary, is we're no longer going to neglect God's work with the way that we spend our money few observations about the way that they did it in case you did get lost in that big long passage. It was regular. Some were annual. Some were regular on the feasts. It was not defined previously by a tithe. Now a tithe was 10%. And and this is the first time that it it was defined as, hey, everybody's going to give 10%. Previously, they'd say, hey, everyone be generous. And you know what happened? They had more than what they needed, and some of it they gave back. Wouldn't you love for that to be the case? If we're like, hey, we're all going to participate in giving, and guess what? The church has more than what what we needed, so we're going to give some of it back to you. That'd be amazing. And these people, they're all saying, hey, 10%, we're going to give that. Without, and, they, and they took on the obligation. And obligation is kind of a nasty word in, in, in our modern culture. But here's what they're saying. We're agreeing to participate in the joy of God's victories in the world by giving up some temporary thing that we couldn't hold on to anyway. That's what they're saying. We're going to give up something temporary so that we can gain something. We can participate in something that will outlast us. We're investing in something much further ahead of us. The Levites even tithe. That's the other thing. Now, this means that the people that this tithe were paying for, they also gave. Those people said, okay, we also are going to contribute. It was from the first fruits, which means they gave from the top, not from what was left over. They said, okay, first thing we're going to do Once we get whatever we have taken in, we're going to take that and give it to God's work. We're going to participate in God's work. It was the first thing they did. And every firstborn child, every firstborn animal, if they didn't give that child to God's service, they had a way of redeeming it by giving money to God or giving their tithes, offerings to God. They didn't neglect God's work, God's worship, and the place where he was to be worshiped. This was part of them restoring the culture of God's people. Because listen, God's people has never been just a collection of ideas. It's not even just a collection of people. It's a collection of people who are living out the beliefs that we profess. And there were three things that they said. They they said, we're we're no longer going to neglect the things that we dropped in the past. Our marriages didn't reflect you. We're going to pick that back up. Our homes didn't reflect you. We're picking that back up. The ways that we were trusting in you in terms of the Sabbath, the ways that we were saying, hey, we trust that you're going to be provider for us. They were giving up things economically that they could not seize for themselves. They were saying, hey, we're going to give that up because we trust you for the seventh year. We're going to trust you for all the debts that it's going to cost us that we don't demand from other people. Now, can you imagine a group of people who were just so convinced of God's goodness that they said, hey, there's nothing we're going to grasp too tightly here because all of this is temporary. I can imagine that being us, Bellwether, being such a group of people who say, we trust you to provide so much so that we're going to release the things that are temporary. <sighs> Main point, and I'm wrapping up, promise, is this. God's people had reached a point of confession and worship, but it didn't end there. They had to create a culture where that worship was lived out, where they said, hey, this is what our value on God means for us in our day-to-day lives. They're at a point of confession and worship last week. This week, we're looking at how that confession played itself out in their culture. And they said, these are what we're going to do. And it looked like surrender. It looked like sacrifice over and over. They're saying, hey, we surrender our homes to you. We surrender all the financial gain that could come from us marrying into this culture. We're surrendering that to you. We're going to give up what we could have gained, that sacrifice. Then on the Sabbath, they said, we're going to surrender these days of rest. They would not have even had power to observe the Sabbath. They were slaves, okay? So they're coming to a point where they're saying, hey, we have the ability to observe this now, and we're going to use that independence to honor you. We're going to trust you by faith to surrender what we can't control, and we're going to sacrifice what we can in order to trust your design for the world. And then they get to uh, the last thing in giving. In generosity, they're saying, hey, we're going to surrender what we could keep, and we're going to sacrifice what we could have kept in order to honor you and your place of worship. We want to contribute to what you're doing so that we can be part of you accomplishing your work in the world. Now, God invites us to those same kind of surrender and sacrifice. So I want to ask you this question as I close. Where is God inviting me to surrender and sacrifice? Because look, the fact that they brought up their homes, the Sabbath, and, and giving, there could be any number of things where God is saying the same thing over you. I don't know that that's the three areas. That's just where they were. But right now, God, there's all kinds of things in the past that maybe God invited you into and you've dropped that obligation in order to you just got distracted, maybe. Maybe you just got bewildered because COVID happened and now here you are. Whatever it is, this is the occasion where God invites you to pick back up whatever you've left behind. And that's what this group of people are doing. In surrender and sacrifice, they're saying, hey, the things that we had forgotten, the things that we weren't practicing, we're picking those things back up and we're saying yes to them. So what What is he inviting you to surrender and sacrifice? He has purpose for your relationships. I want you to know he's a provider for you. And so whatever you could do, but it's optional right now, maybe God's not inviting you into it right now, whatever it is, just trust that he's good. He'll provide for you. Their provision always worked out by God. And as individual followers of Christ, there's occasions like this all the time where we see the responsibilities that we've assumed, forgotten, and somehow forsaken, and we're reminded of them, and we need to pick them up by grace and say, Lord, I'm stepping into what you've called me to. Second question is this, what kind of culture are we cultivating? Now, if they're stepping into surrender and sacrifice, what they were coveting to do in this defined how they were going to behave in the future, And I believe that God is cultivating a culture among us that would demonstrate over and over and over the gospel. There may be the kind of people here whose marriages have borne very little resemblance to Christ's suffering for the church. There may be people here whose homes do not look like God's patience. And he's saying, hey, I'm inviting you to demonstrate what I've done for you in everyday relationships around you. And the primary place of surrender and sacrifice comes with us just looking to God and saying, okay, what do you, how do you want me to live out these things I profess to be true about you? God invites us in all of our culture to reflect him. And here's who he is. He takes the most lost, wounded people and he says, mine, you're mine. And he loves them over and over and over again. He invites us to reflect what He's demonstrated on the cross that we couldn't do for ourselves, that He died in our place for our sins. And if you've never trusted in Him, you're always going to be bankrupt when it comes to loving other people like that. You will be. You will not have it to give. There's nothing that you can give that we have not received from Him first. And I'm going to tell you, your goodness has really, it has limits, okay? It has limits. Your surrender, your sacrifice has limits. But Christ who stood in our place for our sins, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. The perfect surrender was lived out for you on the cross. The perfect sacrifice was lived out for you through his death, his life, his death, his resurrection. And he's inviting you to receive his sacrifice and surrender as a gift to you today. That's his gift to you. And he's not only inviting you to receive it, but to become a conduit of what you receive in his surrender and sacrifice. He's saying, hey, come and be loved by me. Come and receive this great love that you could not purchase, you could not be worthy of. I just declare that you're worth because it's who I am. And he sets that on you because of his work. And if you will receive that, it will transform the way that you interact in your home. It'll transform the way that you see your job. It'll transform the way that you see what you own. You'll start to see he owns everything. He's got all of it. There's none of this that ever belonged to me in the first first place. And so I'm asking you right now, what kind of culture are we cultivating? Does it resemble what we've received or does it resemble what we're trying to do? Because if we're just attempting to do things for Jesus, we will fall short every single time. And our culture has to be defined by what he has done for us. And it will transform the way that we work in the world. I'm gonna close with this. A few years ago, uh, uh, listen, our family was just losing, okay? Anybody ever feel that? You're like, all that I hear is bickering. It's just no good. All these kids are fighting and I don't like it. And we're all arguing with each other. I don't like how it's working, okay? And so I did uh, what? <laughs> I put together a slide presentation, okay? And, I, and I, I got specific orders from all of my kids. Look, I'm getting takeout. You can choose a happy meal. You can choose Chinese. I'll get Thai food. I went to five different restaurants that night and I brought all of their favorite foods home and we had a meal together. And then I brought up the slideshow on the TV and I said, look, here's all the ways that we're failing as a family. We need to turn this thing around, Okay. And we did a 360 review. Every person got to give their positive and negative feedbacks about running one another. And I said, look, we got to change this thing right now. And uh, Mostly what it provided was good laughter for my kids, okay? They just sat there uh, uh, laughing at my slide presentation. And I was dead serious about it. I'm like, look, this is what we got to do. This is where we're going as a family. This is the economy of our home. It's got to change, It shift. We're all going to debt, okay? So... What I want you to know is that that, that that night, it was fun. It was a moment for us as a family. It didn't change anything about the culture of our home because it's a slow process. It is a trudge. You can come to moments where you're like, hey, I am ready to just sign it all over to God. You can come to moments like that. These people came to that moment in this moment, okay? They were saying, here's the occasion. We just gladly surrender everything to you. A couple chapters later, they're struggling again. Okay? We'll get there in a few weeks. Here's what I want you to know. Look, there's no like flipping of the switch. You don't just like turn it on and say, I've signed it over, I surrender, I sacrifice. It is daily picking it up and saying, I'm gonna step right up to this throne of grace again and receive what I cannot give to others unless you fill my cup because it is emptied every single day. And so it doesn't matter what kind of slide presentation you do. And I guarantee you these people walked away and someone were like, I'm getting hungry, okay? (laughs) I guarantee you. Some of them were just so moved by this moment where they signed the thing over. And others were thinking, hey, what are we having for lunch? <laughs> Here's the point. The day, between this day and the day that we see God face to face, there's going to be a regular pattern where you've got to come back, come back again, come back again, and remember the things that you fell off Remember the things that you dropped along the way, the obligations that you gladly would have received at some moment have somehow become a chore. And I want to invite you back into the joy of all of those things. You cannot do it unless you receive it. Let me pray for you to that end. Father, thank you for this group of people. Thank you for your word. I pray that it would renew us today in all of these aspects. And for your name's sake, Jesus, amen.